0: Well, thank you very much, and you are listening to The Jazz Focus, a jazz podcast dedicated to shedding some light on the cobwebby corners of jazz recorded history. My name is John Clark, and thank you very much for being with us today. I hope you're enjoying these programs, and uh, I'm here to tell you I'm enjoying making them. I'm loving bringing back some of these uh, great Uh, pieces of jazz history that maybe don't get uh, looked at too closely these days. These are recordings that I've been familiar with for a very long time and have in one way or another meant something to me as I've gone along the process of learning about jazz. Today we're going to be featuring three sessions uh, recorded by Earl Hines and his orchestra. This was the band that Earl Hines had at the Grand Terrace Ballroom in Chicago in the middle 1930s. And uh, some of you who've uh, been with us for a while may remember the podcast we did a while back of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra from 1934. We looked at uh, three recording sessions that he did in New York um, that were uh, some of the first sessions that were recorded for Decca Records. Decca Records was founded in the fall of 1934 or actually started uh, operations uh, with uh, big bands and, and current jazz acts about then. Uh, Jack Kapp was a... Uh, Noted figure in early jazz recordings, he had been uh, one of the talent scouts and, and producers for Brunswick Records, Brunswick Vocalion, in the late 1920s into the early 30s. But by about 1934, he had branched out and started Decca Records. And part of the uh, reason for starting this is he wanted a a cheaper label. This was, of course, during the depression. He uh, was. Uh, cognizant of the fact that jazz, and especially big bands, were becoming more popular. This was before the official swing era, uh, but he rode that, uh, that, that wave very nicely. Uh, the swing era starts usually by uh, popular consensus in the summer of 1935, when Benny Goodman's band hit it big out on the west coast at the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles. Well, Decca Records had been creating a catalog of uh, white and black recordings from the fall of 1934, so when the uh, the big boom hit, they were uniquely uh, situated to take advantage of that. Uh, in addition, to Earl Hines and... Uh, Fletcher Henderson, the the Decca Recording Company, recorded uh, Jimmy Lunsford's band, uh, Louis Armstrong's band at the time, and quite a few others. So this group that we are going to talk about, uh, as I said, was a group that was working at the Grand Terrace Ballroom, which was one of the fanciest ballrooms in Chicago. Started in about 1929, 1930. It was initially funded uh, by uh, the syndicate, by the gangsters, especially Al Capone, who had a very big hand in the management of the Grand Terrace. It was run nominally by a fellow named Ed Fox, who was, I guess, a kind of a minor mafia don or worker Um, and he was responsible for getting the Heinz band in there although interestingly for the first couple of years of uh, Heinz um, uh work at the Grand Terrace, Fox was actively trying to get him out. He was trying to find some other bands that would go in there. But uh, Earl Hines band was quite popular and they benefited by frequent uh, radio hookups, radio broadcasts from the Grand Terrace that went all the way to the East Coast and to the West Coast. So the band came to be pretty well known around the country, even though they didn't tour a great deal. They did come to New York once or twice. Um, I think they made some local and regional tours, but their real job was playing for the dancers and the floor shows at the Grand Terrace. So a little bit about Earl Hines. He was born in 1903. He uh, always said he was born in 1905, but after he died, uh, the secret came out. He had shaved a couple of years off his uh, birth. You have to wonder why people shaved a couple of years. We're going to hear about a musician in Earl Hines' band that shaved... Uh, over 10 years, and I guess we can understand that, but uh, two years doesn't seem to be too much. Anyway, Hines had a very long life. He lived to be almost 80 years old. He died in 1983, uh, and when he died, he was still at the height of his powers as a pianist. He was uh, one of the truly great jazz pianists in history, and sometimes he doesn't get his full due in that regard simply because he was known as a band leader. He led this big band from about 1929 up until the late 1940s, and then he went on the road with Louis Armstrong's All-Stars for a while, playing in uh, a New Orleans, Dixieland type of setting. Uh, Then he founded his own New Orleans slash Dixieland type of band that was active in Chicago and then out at the Hangover Club in San Francisco before returning to more modern jazz and swing and even some early or or some proto-bebop in his later groups before he really became recognized as one of the great solo pianists of all time. So he was born in... uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as I said, in 1903. He started playing trumpet, but he said that actually hurt his ears, although his style of trumpet uh, playing was translated somehow to piano. He was noted for his octave uh, melodies, playing them in different uh, octave uh, passages, so they would cut through the band. You have to figure back in the 1920s, uh, pianos sometimes were not very good, and no different in the 2020s, I suppose, and by hammering out melody lines in in octaves, the piano player could be heard over a larger band. And uh, in addition to this, Hines was a very fine technical pianist. He had very solid training early in his life. He went out on the road uh, by the time he was 16 or 17 years old, touring with the Lois Depp Orchestra. Lois Depp was a a male singer from that area who sang classical and jazz, and Hines made uh, some very early recordings with him before he ended up in Chicago in the uh, 1927 627 time frame. He very quickly made the acquaintance of Louis Armstrong who was recording with his Hot Five at the time and uh, also playing with uh, Erskine Tate and then Carol Dickerson's band and Hines uh, started playing with Armstrong with those larger groups, but also started making recordings with his newly uh, revamped Hot Five, the Savoy Ballroom Five. Uh, Armstrong got rid of a lot of the New Orleans associations that uh, he had used for the first couple of years of the recordings uh, that that group made with Kid Ori on trombone and Johnny Dodds and Lil Hardin and so forth, but uh, uh, he started using some of the musicians from the dance bands he was playing with and that led to the classic recordings that Heinz and Armstrong made of things like West End Blues and Muggles and Weatherbird Rag and things like that. Um, Hines was also at the same time playing with Jimmy Noon's band in the After Hours Club, the Apex Club, also later on the Nest and some different um, speakeasies during this Prohibition era in Chicago. And Hines also uh, was recording with other groups. He recorded with a... uh, a jug band, a black jug band at the time. He recorded um, some accompaniments to singers. He did quite a lot of different things before putting together this big band. And also we should mention he uh, he started his uh, solo piano recording career at the time as well. He made a quick trip to New York to record for QRS, Uh, which was a piano roll company, although he recorded live recordings for them. Not really live, of course, but uh, recordings in the studio as opposed to the mechanical reproductions that uh, we think of with uh, piano rolls. So by the time he returned to Chicago in 1929, he had it in his head to start a big band, and he did. He was collecting arrangements, and when the time came, or the opportunity came, to bring the band into the Grand Terrace, he was ready. And uh, he started making recordings with this group in about 1928, 29. they were not all that great other than his own playing, but uh, they were solid examples of big band style from that period. By the time we get to 1933 or 34 his group had really solidified into quite a fine uh, unit. He had uh, mostly Chicago and a few New Orleans musicians in this band. We'll talk about them uh, after we listen to a few tracks. A uh, lot of jazz uh, improvisation in here, a lot of solos, not only by the leader on piano, but he was quite generous with his sidemen as well. and. Uh, after they had uh, done a number of recordings for for Victor and Brunswick and different companies, as I said, they were hired to do a series of recordings for DECA. And they were, uh, I don't know if, I guess they were under contract to DECA. They did three sessions on September 12th and 13th of 1934, and then a follow-up session on February 12th of 1935. And then after that, they went back to to vocalion recordings. So whether or not they... uh, Were commercial successes, I guess we'd have to say no, because they didn't continue their association. Same with Fletcher Henderson, whose band broke up uh, almost immediately after making those deca sessions. On the other hand, we have Lunsford and uh, Louis Armstrong, who continued their association. So we're going to start with some of the tunes. We're actually going to go more or less in order. They were 16 tunes that were recorded across these three sessions, and we're going to listen to 12 or 13, maybe get up to 14 of them. I'm going to omit a couple of the vocal recordings um, and concentrate on the jazz here. Uh, We're going to start with a good old good one, as Louis Armstrong used to say, That's A Plenty, which was composed as a uh, piano solo, a, uh, a ragtime piano solo by a composer named Lou Pollock, and it was originally recorded by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings in 1922 in Chicago. So we're gonna hear that, and I should mention that most of the arrangements we're going to hear right off the bat are by the bass player, uh, Quinn Wilson. He was a Chicago musician was playing tuba and bass on these recordings, and he did a lot of the arrangements during this period. Most of the arrangements that are not by Quinn Wilson are by Jimmy Mundy who was playing tenor sax in the band as well and he of course went on to become very well known uh, as a freelance arranger and um, as a uh, contract arranger during the swing hour for Benny Goodman and uh, Jimmy Dorsey among others. A lot of different groups and a lot of different fine arrangements by Jimmy Mundy uh, found their way onto records. So, after That's A Plenty, we're going to hear a tune called Fat Babes, which was by Jimmy Mundy, and it's one of his arrangements, of course. Then we're going to go to the classic Maple Leaf Rag, Scott Joplin's tune from the late 1890s. This is an up-to-date swing arrangement of that. And then follow that up with Sweet Georgia Brown, which in 1934 was already about 11 or 12 years old. That was a Maceo Pinkard tune um, that had been uh, used in, in, in jazz performance ever since it was composed. So those are our four tunes to begin with. That's A Plenty, Fat Babes, Maple Leaf Rag, and Sweet Georgia Brown. These were all recorded in Chicago for Decca Records on September 12, 1934. band from 1934, September 12th to be precise. So, a little bit about the personnel of this band. Um, We had three trumpets here. We had a man named Charlie Allen, who was the lead trumpet player. He had uh, played with Heinz Band earlier. He played with Doc Cook's band in the 1920s. He had a brief term with uh, Ellington's band in the mid-30s, about a year later. Um, And then he uh, went back to Earl Heinz and then stayed in Chicago and became a music educator. Uh, George Dixon was uh, the second trumpet player or another trumpet player. He is responsible for most of the muted solos we're going to hear. It's a little hard uh, disentangling some of the trumpet solos, but generally speaking, he plays muted. uh, And we heard him featured on Maple Leaf Rag and Sweet Georgia Brown. He tended to play in a little bit more of a staccato style than the other trumpeter, whose name was Walter Fuller. Walter Fuller was a big part of the Heinz Band's... showmanship. He was a singer. We're going to hear him on the next number. He sang in a kind of a breathless Louis Armstrong influenced style and his trumpet playing was very influenced by Louis as well. He has that big open sound, very dramatic and uh, pretty easy to pick him out. We heard him on uh, That's A Plenty and I think a little on Fat Babes too, so we'll be hearing them. George Dixon, I should also mention, uh, could double very well on saxophone and occasionally on violin as well, so he was a, a good guy to have in the band to, for an arranger to, uh, to put to use in different ways. In the trombone section, we have Louis Taylor, who uh, was not really a soloist. He would play some of the straight melodies. I guess he was more the lead player. Uh, he'd been in Chicago for a while. We also have uh, William Franklin, known as Billy Franklin, who uh, did a little of the early jazz playing uh, on... Um the late 1920s and early 1930s sides, he was actually known as a singer. He was a a tenor uh, singer, and later on, after an automobile accident, which we'll talk about later, he uh, couldn't play trombone anymore, so he drifted over to the classical world and became a very well-respected opera singer in Chicago from the late 1930s. Rounding out the trombone section, and interesting that we have three trombones, uh, that was something of an innovation in the mid-30s. The only bands who were doing that were on the East Coast. We had Duke Ellington and Don Redmond's band who were um, doing some interesting arrangements for trombone trio. But the third member of the trio was Trummy Young. Uh, Trummy Young has a particularly... interesting and varied career from this point. The Earl Hines Band was the first uh, really name band that he played with. He joined them in 1933. Hines had heard him and someone else we're going to talk about in a second in Washington uh, in a band led by Tommy Miles. And uh, he had picked both of uh, them, uh, Trummy Young and Jimmy Mundy, up and brought them along with his band. And Trummy Young uh, will be playing some solos coming up. He wasn't uh, overwhelmingly featured in this band, but uh, he will be shortly. He jumped from the Heinz band to the Jimmy Lunsford band. Of course, he was a key member of that, soloing, singing, and... uh showing off uh, as part of their stage show until the early 1940s. He then joined Benny Goodman for a while, uh, did some studio work. He was on some of the early bebop sessions. He was considered a very progressive trombone player in the 1940s, and then went with Louis Armstrong's All-Stars in 1952 and stayed with them till 1964, and whereupon he retired to Hawaii and uh, made occasional recording dates and played occasionally there. In the saxophone section we have on lead alto, I presume on lead alto anyway, Omer Simeon. Omer Simeon was a New Orleans native who grew up in Chicago. Uh, He is a really unsung musician in a lot of ways. He's given immense credit, as well he should be given, uh, for his clarinet playing on the Jelly Roll Morton sides, the Red Hot Pepper sides from 1926, 27, 28. He also recorded with King Oliver's uh, Dixie Syncopators and did fine solos. Uh, He was a, a well represented on record in Chicago uh, during that period. He recorded uh, with um, Jabbo Smith, with uh, many of the other groups in there as well. We heard some of his playing on an earlier podcast uh, with Jabbo Smith under his own name and also um, with Reuben River Reeves. So he was known as a clarinet player, but he was a very... uh, accomplished musician he could read well he could lead sections well he's responsible for the alto saxophone solos we heard uh so far on that's a plenty and maple leaf rag he's going to be featured on alto uh, on baritone sax and uh i think on at least one clarinet solo as well so he was really responsible for leading that section playing second alto was uh, another interesting clarinet player darnell howard uh Darnell Howard was born in 1895, making him one of the oldest musicians in this band, although he was very vain about his age. He did a, an interview with uh, the Hogan Jazz Archive uh, in the 19, uh, late 1950s, where he insisted that he was only 50 years old, despite the fact that he was giving his resume of bands that he couldn't possibly have played with uh, as early as, uh, or as young as he uh, appeared to be. So he plays many of the clarinet solos. We heard him very briefly at the end of Sweet Georgia Brown. Um, He'll also do uh, some alto sax, and you will hear a violin solo from him. He started out as a violin player. He made his first recordings with the W.C. Handy Orchestra in 1918 as a violinist, and then he... uh went through a very peripatetic phase in Chicago. He played with all kinds of groups. He toured uh, the Orient. He went to Shanghai. He went to uh, England, to France. He played for James P. Johnson in a show that went over to England in the mid-1920s. He played with uh, a number of the the finest groups in Chicago, including, um, I believe, Erskine Tate and also King Oliver's band, before joining Earl Hines in about 1932-33. And he stayed with him uh, until about 1936-37. He went with Fletcher Henderson and did some other big band work. He left music briefly uh, to come back uh, as a clarinet player in the New Orleans style. He was not from New Orleans, but he had a lot of that sound. And he played on one of Kid Ori's first recording dates when he was uh, coming back out of retirement. And uh, he uh, played with Earl Hines, uh, New Orleans style band in the 1950s as well. On tenor we have Cecil Irwin, not very well known. He died quite young. Uh, he was killed in a car accident on uh, May 3rd of 1935, so only about six, seven months after this recording date that we just heard. And that was the accident that also um, stopped Bill Franklin from playing trombone. And Irwin was a uh, sort of an up-and-coming tenor jazz soloist at the time. He really uh, was was associated with this band, the Earl Hines Band. He did some other recording dates, but he hadn't really gotten going before he was killed, unfortunately. We probably would think much more highly of Cecil Irwin's playing, although his tenor playing that we've heard so far um, is certainly in the, in the um, uh, Coleman-Hawkins mode, and we'll hear some more of that coming up, too. Uh, The discography only lists those three saxophones, but Jimmy Mundy was probably playing fourth saxophone. There are pictures of the band from this period that have him with it. He was not a soloist. He was an arranger. As I mentioned, Hines had heard him in a Washington band led by Tommy Miles and brought him and Trummy Young uh, to Chicago to play with his group at the Grand Terrace. In the rhythm section, of course, we have Earl Hines, featured on virtually all of the numbers. Um, the ones that we heard that really show him off to the best effect, I think, are Fat Babes and Maple Leaf Rag. I should mention Fat Babes, the Mundy arrangement, uh, was composed by him and makes especially good use of the trombone trio. We have Lawrence Dixon on guitar. Uh, he had been with Heinz for a while. He stayed with him for a m- number of years. He ended up playing with Franz Jackson's New Orleans All-Stars, uh, a, a kind of a retro New Orleans traditional jazz band that was very, very popular in Chicago from uh, all through the 1950s and 60s. Franz Jackson played with Earl Hines on saxophone, um, much younger than most of these musicians, but he went and, and got some of the older guys out of retirement or semi-retirement and put them together in a group that had a lot of success during that later period. We have, as I mentioned, Quinn Wilson on uh, string bass. I I think he may play tuba on one number coming up, but by and large, he had switched over to string bass by this point. He was a Chicago native, also played violin, and was responsible for many of these arrangements. And his arrangements, I should mention, of uh, um, Sweet Georgia Brown and Maple Leaf Rag especially, really feature the saxophone section. Uh, he did some wonderful four-piece uh, saxophone soli uh, passages in there. And then last but not least, we have Wallace Bishop on drums. And his drumming is very, very tasty throughout these uh, sessions. He ended up moving to Europe in the late 1940s, uh, playing with Earl Hines a little bit over there when he he went over. But he... Uh, lived, I think, the last 35 years of his life in Europe and especially in in France and Holland and uh, was a a noted jazz performer over there at the time. But his work with the Heinz Band at this stage of the game really uh, kind of looks forward to even uh, people like uh, Joe Jones and his mode of drumming with the Basie Band a few years down the road. So we're gonna hear the last tune recorded from September 12th of 1934, Rosetta. Now this was composed by Earl Hines and Henri Wood, and this became a, a pop tune and pretty well known. This is gonna be sung by Walter Fuller, who uh, was so associated with the tune, his nickname for a while anyway was Rosetta. I don't know how he felt about that, but there you go. Uh, we're gonna go on from that point and hear three tunes from the next day, September 13th. All jazz standards and why uh, these uh, recording dates were so heavily weighted towards Earlier jazz repertoire, of the 1920s. I'm not sure. Uh, Jack Kapp obviously wanted these bands, Henderson and Lunsford and, and Hines, playing their jazz repertoire, and apparently Hines uh, featured these tunes m- more often. Appar- I guess he must have had a more conservative repertoire in Chicago than, for example, Fletcher Henderson had in New York. So the three tunes after Rosetta we're going to hear are Copenhagen, Angry, and the Wolverine Blues, and we'll tell you about those when we get there. So, Rosetta, Copenhagen, Angry and the Wolverine Blues. Rosetta I'll be waiting Oh, not for teasing Oh, but only for Oh, baby do. Zay, 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 zay. Never leave me I'll be always Always the one, dear. Oh baby, my love for you Why, you've made me learn Learn to forget All those things Things that could keep us apart Why, Rosetta Never leave me I'll be always always the one for you some very fine Earl Hines in his orchestra performances. Some of those arrangements sound like, sound like they were a little bit truncated for recording purposes. Uh, you get the feeling that some of these were uh, used on uh, their dance sets or concert sets or whatever, maybe to back up some chorus lines, things like that, and they might have been stretched out a little bit more. Clearly, uh, Hines valued his soloists. Uh, he featured himself, as he should have more than anybody else, but uh, a lot of these soloists got a lot of time on these recordings. We started out with Rosetta, uh, a pop song composed by Earl Hines, has since become a standard and featuring a vocal by Walter Fuller on trumpet also in there as well. And as I said, he was so associated with that tune, he came to be known as Rosetta for a while. Then we followed up with a jazz tune called Copenhagen, which went back to the early 1920s. Of course, Bix Beiderbecke recorded that with the Wolverines. It was a tune composed by uh, bandleader Charlie Davis, and uh, supposedly it was in tribute to his tuba players, Tobacco of Choice. And it became a jazz standard, especially in the Midwest and in Chicago, although Fletcher Henderson had a great recording of it uh, featuring a Louis Armstrong solo. And uh, clearly it was still being played in Chicago in 1934. And that recording featured some very fine Darnell Howard on clarinet, along with uh, Cecil Irwin on tenor sax, Walter Fuller again on trumpet, and our first taste of Trummy Young on trombone, playing two choruses starting out with a very fast lip trill. He was known for that even back in those days. And that featured an excellent Earl Hines solo, but the next tune gave even better Earl Hines, the pop tune Angry from about 19. 24 was done, or actually a little before that, 1922, was done by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, and it's credited to uh, Dud Meekum, who was a Chicago musician, and the Bruni's brothers, um, also Jules Cassard, who was a New Orleans player. And uh, that may have been a tune that was composed in New Orleans, who knows, but was published in Chicago. And Heinz takes two choruses on that, accompanied just by Wallace Bishop on drums, and uh, really gets into the uh, guts of the tune. He takes it outside his rhythmic... Uh, peregrinations are, are, are extraordinary. He was a, the most rhythmically secure piano player, at least until Art Tatum, and some would say uh, he and Tatum were, were definitely uh, on a par together in, in in terms of that. So that was Angry. Then we followed up with a Jelly Roll Morton tune, Wolverine Blues. We can see that Heinz was uh, exploring the early Chicago jazz repertoire with this. This is an up-to-date arrangement, uh, in this case, um, by Quinn uh, Wilson. Again, uh, I should mention Jimmy Mundy um, was the arranger for Copenhagen and he will be for the last tune as well. All the other uh, tunes were arranged by Quinn Wilson. So Wolverine Blues featured uh, the two trumpets. It started out with George Dixon on uh, muted trumpet. A little bit later we heard Walter Fuller on open trumpet and Darnell Howard uh, playing a clarinet ride over at the end of the recording. And in between we heard Omar Simeon. We also heard him uh, on Rosetta playing alto sax. And Simeon was really, as I said, an underrated musician. He had been uh, tapped to join Duke Ellington's band I think about this time. Uh, This was about when Otto Hardwick left the Ellington band, uh, for a while anyway, uh, a little bit before 1934, and I believe in Barney Bagard's autobiography. He said that he was trying to get Simeon into the Ellington band and Ellington was all for it, but Simeon's wife vetoed the deal because she wanted to stay in Chicago. And uh, Bagard said Simeon always regretted that decision not to join Ellington because he would have been probably the section leader and featured and quite a bit uh, better known uh, because of that. Then we finished off with an extra tune, Rock and Rye by Earl Hines. This was a Jimmy Mundy arrangement as well. Really Stomp an arrangement featured Cecil Irwin and Walter Fuller on trumpet uh, with a very unusual kind of a, a an indefinite ending that in this case I don't think was a truncated version I think it was meant to be that way so that a uh, little bit more modern than the other tunes we've heard from the Earl Hines orchestra As I said, Earl Hines' band was resident at the Grand Terrace uh, through most of the 30s from 1928 until 1938, and I think a little bit after that, uh, Fletcher Henderson's band was also at the Grand Terrace for a while, but Hines uh, was there really up until uh, Al Capone was no longer an influence on the the racketeering mob in Chicago. He was one of Hines' protectors, and Hines actually spoke highly of Capone, said he was a good man to work for, as good as a gangster could be, I suppose. But he did appreciate music. So we're going to hear, oh, I don't know, two, three, maybe four more tunes. We'll let this keep going. Uh, This is such a great band. We're going to hear another Earl Hines tune that was um, uh, arranged by Jimmy Mundy, although this may have been a Jimmy Mundy tune. He may have brought this from Washington, uh, as far as we know. It's called Cavernism. And we're going to go from there into a pop tune from the 1920s by Richard Whiting called Japanese Sandman, which contains some wonderful drumming by Wallace Bishop. He uh, was known as Japanese Sandman for a while. He was associated with his own drumming on this tune. And then after that, we're going to do Bubbling Over. Again, uh, another Jimmy Mundy tune. Uh or Jimmy Mundy arrangement, in this case, of a Heinz tune. Uh, this was apparently originally called Bubbling Over with Beer, and it celebrated the repeal of Prohibition right about this same time, a little bit before this, in 1934. So those three tunes, and if we have time, we may stick in another one, but those three will get us going. Cavernism, Japanese Sandman, and Bubbling Over. <music> extra on that one. I wasn't going to play that last tune, which is called Blue by Wilson Carpenter and Dunlap. Um, The reason I put that on, first of all, it had a phenomenal Earl Hines solo, and it has a nice loping tempo to it, It as close to a ballad as this band recorded. It also had some very nice George Dixon on muted trumpet, but for me, the star was Omer Simeon on alto sax, and even if he had not recorded with Jelly Roll Morton and done all that wonderful clarinet work, he would still be one of the finer alto sax soloists at this point uh, during the early swing era. Uh, He was known as a section leader. He played a little bit later with, briefly, with um, uh, Fletcher Henderson's band. He also replaced the great Willie Smith with the Jimmy Lunsford band. And that was a, a, a tall order to fill, and he did it very well in the 1940s. So we started out with cavernism and uh this was a, another, as i said a tune probably by jimmy mundy and uh, arranged by him and it featured darnell howard on his first instrument violin and Howard did not record a great deal on violin in a jazz setting, although he did a few things here and there. He was considered to be one of the better jazz violinists of the 1920s and 30s, and was thought to have influenced such better-known jazz violinists as Eddie South and Stuff Smith. Uh, and periodically in his career, he went back to it and would record occasionally. But uh, he was much better known as a clarinet player, and we heard him on clarinet on several other tunes. Uh, not, however on the next tune, which was Japanese Sandman. There, the clarinet playing was by Omer Simeon. And uh, Simeon left the Heinz Band for a year or two. Actually, many of the members of the band left because they were fed up with the Grand Terrace uh, and Ed Fox and not getting a raise. Uh, And then they came back sometime later. Simeon was with the Heinz Band from about 1939 uh, for a couple of years beyond that and he recorded some excellent clarinet solos then. We also heard some Trummy Young on that Japanese Sandman recording which as I said also featured the excellent and very understated drumming of Wallace Bishop. Then we went to Bubbling Over with Beer, which featured a raft of soloists. Omer Simeon on alto, Darnell Howard on clarinet, and then the two trumpets. First, George Dixon on muted trumpet and Walter Fuller on uh, open trumpet in that Louis Armstrong style. And again, some very fine Earl Hines playing all the way through this collection. So... Hines Band left the Grand Terrace in about 1940. Uh, it had been off and on for a little while. Ed Fox was not the best person to work for, and uh, he sort of had Hines uh, sewed up in a contract, which may have been put in effect by Al Capone, despite the fact that he, he was safe working there because Capone protected him. Hines did not make a lot of money, and he was essentially an indentured servant to uh, the Grand Terrace for the period of time he was there. He couldn't use his own name on other things. His recording activity was restricted significantly. And it wasn't until uh, the breakup of, of, of that version of the Chicago mob in about 1940, which ended with the Mysterious Disappearance of Ed Fox that uh, kind of broke up the cartel that uh, controlled Earl Hines. And he took his band on the road for a number of years and had some other uh, great successes, including a a very modern big band from about 1944 and 45, which featured Billy Eckstein, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Gene Ammons, quite a few uh, of of the... proto-bop players, the neo-bop players who were coming in, and a lot of that group ended up playing for Er Billy Eckstein's big band, which is considered the incubator of bebop from that period. Earl Hines was very, very well thought of by musicians throughout the whole spectrum of jazz as a musician and as a jazz improviser. So I hope you've enjoyed this program. Earl Hines and his orchestra recording for Decca in 1935, uh, 34 and 35, I should say, and uh, gives you a good idea of what a show band in Chicago sounded like that uh, really uh, privileged jazz and jazz improvisation. Some wonderful solos, uh, and maybe not a cutting edge big band at the time, but very good to listen to and uh, presumably pretty good to dance to at the time as well. So, you've been listening to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and hope you'll know, join us again for upcoming programs. Have lots of ideas. Please check out our Instagram page under my band name, the Wolverine Jazz Band, Instagram and Facebook, and also wolverinejazzband.com. Please take a look, get in contact with us. Love to hear from you. And if you are so inclined, please hit that little sponsorship button and uh, sponsor our program. So, we encourage you to do so. So, thank you very much, and I'll see you on the other side.